everybody. I am joined today by Brian Shredda, who is one of the more well-known, reliable journalists out there in the U.S. soccer landscape. He covers all kinds of aspects of the game, and he has a particular focus and eye at the moment on our guys down in Argentina playing in the U-20 World Cup. Brian, how are you today on this Wednesday, May 24th? Good. Just trying to catch my breath. It's a fun tournament. It's uh, I always loved the U twenty World Cup, and, and it's nice that it's uh rolling again after uh, COVID canceled the last one. Yeah, there's something really unique I think about the U twenty World Cup. It's a it's a lot of fun. It's low enough stakes that you can kind of enjoy it, I think, but also high enough stakes that you get to really test, I think, the player pool. If you were yeah. introducing the U-20 World Cup to someone who'd never seen it before, how would you explain to them why they should watch it or, or what exactly we're watching here? Yeah, I know normally it's um, this year with releases, it, it, you know, it hit a lot of teams hard because clubs are never required to release players for youth national team duty. Um, but it's a chance really to catch some unbelievable talent before they become household names. I mean, you know, you could go through a who's who of players who have played in, in this tournament. I mean, Messi, the U.S. beat Argentina with Messi in 2005. But, uh, you know, it, it's interesting, too, because, um, you know, it's a good chance to test the, the depth. And I think it's actually become more meaningful because 10, 15 years ago, 20-year-olds were not really as common with first and first team, getting first team minutes across the globe. Now, 20 years old is, is a time when everyone's broken through by now and, and has like a lot of people have like a season under their belt of playing. So you really get to, you have a better gauge on who these players are. Although generally they're, they're not always had, well, most of them have not yet made their first big transfer. So you can get players coming out of the USL or I was watching a guy who scored a great goal for Slovakia against Ecuador yesterday. And he plays in the second tier of Slovakia. He's obviously going to climb from there, but you know the clubs. The club significance doesn't really mean as much right now as it does as you know because these players could still at this point be playing anywhere. And it's it's a fun tournament, and I think it really helps to galvanize a player pool, a youth player pool, and they get their they, they get tested at the international level um, in, in intense games, and um, you start to kind of see who's who. It's not perfect. There are good players who didn't make this team who will be among the best of this age group. But, you know, for the most part, you really get to see, you know, how this cl- how the country is developing. It's a good snapshot in time about where where these classes of young players are. How many of these players either? I know you've been talking to a lot of the U.S. players, but what's your sense of the tournament as a whole? How many of these players are playing to be recruited and, and make that big transfer? I think everyone's being looked at. Um, you know, there's some players who, you know, who are watch who are more known coming into this this tournament, but I think when you're when you're scouting one player and you're going to watch his game, you might come away noticing somebody else. I think anyone's on the table. I'm not, I shouldn't say anyone's on the table. Like for example, you know, there could be if Kevin Paredes comes down, you know, and he's going to be joining the U.S. team for the knockouts. Well, he's already at Wolfsburg. I don't think Wolfsburg is going to be really interested in selling him. But there are some players who are outside of those big five European leagues, you know, all across the tournament, not just the U.S. You know, I think anyone's fair game because it's a great chance to have all these teams and all these young players at such a small location. You don't have to be uh, have tunnel vision on one player. You can go in there and, and, and kind of go in with an open mind and see who, you know, scouts can come and say, well, I didn't know this guy, but this is very interesting. And, and that happens quite a bit. 
Of the U.S. pool specifically, I know we've only seen them in in two games so far. Hopefully they have a whole lot of them beyond the group stage, but they played um, Ecuador, they beat them 1-0, and they played Fiji, beating them 3-0. In those two games, are there any players who you think are playing their way into a transfer, either capitalizing on pre-existing interest for, say, the Jack McGlynn's out there, or is there anyone who you think has surprised the scouts as well as maybe you and I? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, obviously J- Jonathan Gomez scored that wonder goal against Ecuador, and I think he was he's already made his move to a big five team. But, you know, also there's, a, there's another angle on this too. It's like you could be looking at players who are with big five teams, teams in the big five leagues, but who might not be playing much. And now all of a sudden you get suitors who t- to want to take these players on loan. I think that's very relevant for like Gaga Slonina. Um, I think Gaga is a guy who's, you know, he's not, he's, it's good being just a, at, Ch- at Chelsea's U23 team has a limited shelf life in terms of its usefulness to him. I think eventually he's going to, but who's going to want to start a 19 year old goalkeeper? Well, he's got to kind of go out and show off in games like this, that he's ready for that. You know, in terms of players, you know, I think McGlynn is certainly one of them that had people wanting to go watch and, uh, and, and he checked a lot of boxes uh, coming in. And I think he's, he's been pretty good. I think Caleb Wiley, I think is probably the one guy who scouts wanted to watch most in this tournament who has not made that jump. You know, he has that athleticism to cover that line and get back and forth and, and play a variety of positions. You know, he might not be as technical as everyone wants, but like he's still technical enough to be a good player. And, and again, you know, that athleticism is very good. And I think Obed Vargas, he's still a, maybe a couple years away from making a move away from Seattle. But, you know, I thought he was very calm and mature and polished in, in the minutes he's seen as one of the team's younger players. You know, and Brandon Craig, I think, is good. I don't think he's being watched out for a transfer. I just think, you know, you know, I know you're based down there in Philadelphia, but, like, he's a guy who, you know, he shows so well for this team, you know, whenever he gets the opportunity. Now, obviously, at the Union, he has two very good center backs in front of him. Uh, so it's tough. And he's an 0-4, so... You know, there really isn't that much of a hurry, but he's showing that he can play at a first team level somewhere. And I think really, um, you know, it's about getting into that union team for him, um, using this tournament to build some confidence for him. I mean, I, I like him as a player. I think it's good, but it's just, you know, it, it's where does he go now to get minutes? I mean, he's not just going to go from not playing at the union then to like a big five team. It's about trying to you know reset his career a little bit and put get himself into a position where he can be a starting center back somewhere. All very good insight, and I want to dig into a few of the guys you just mentioned, one being Gaga Slonina. I I did not have time, actually, yet to read your piece on him in Soccer America. Can you talk to the audience about where he's at in his career right now and and how you, um, what you talked to him about at at the, from Argentina? Yeah, I mean, look, he's... He, he's he started with he began starting for the fire at 17 years old and 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 you know it, it does happen but it's still rare to have a teenage starting goalkeeper for any first team you know in, in a top division across the world it's just that list is very short but you know he was talking about you know growing within this team and now having the chance you know I know he's had a cap with the senior national team but to really go out there and, and lead the United States team in a, in a in an international tournament is something that he's always wanted to do so you know we spoke to him I spoke to him about 
you know, that and then get just getting involved with his team because he wasn't there for qualifying. His former Chicago Fire teammate Chris Brady was. And Brady's um, in the fire, didn't want to release him. But I think Brady would have been a backup to Slonina anyway. But Slonina's really, he brings unprecedented experience to a, a U.S. youth national team in terms of first team um, minutes and, and, and already having a $15 million transfer to his name. You know, and, and now it's, for him, it's about, okay, you now you have six months of getting adjusted to a Chelsea are you going to go back to Chelsea again and start another year with their U23s? Or are they going to try to find some place where he can start? But then that's tough because when you send a player on loan and the, and the team he's being loaned to doesn't have a stake in his development, like the incentive, the incentives to play him aren't as high. He has to be clearly better than the player that, than the existing goalkeeper that they get. And it's going to be tough for him to find a place to, to start. But, you know, he needs to get back into the, into the mix of first team minutes. I, I just, I, I don't see how long he could play for Chelsea's U23s before like it doesn't it's no longer really useful to him. Do you think that he made the move across at the at the right time or do you think it was a bit of a gamble that could maybe stolt his progress? I mean it's a gamble. I think when you 15 million dollars Chelsea, I mean you you kind of have to take it. Um you know, if if you take away the money aspect of it too, it's like, yeah, I mean, he walked away from first team minutes to go start uh, U23 minutes in England. And those games, you know, yes, good players do come from those those that league. But, it, it, you know, at some point, those players who are good in that league are looking are, are closer more to a loan than they are towards first team, you know, the first team minutes with their parent clubs, particularly with Premier League teams. So, yeah, it's a... It's a move in prestige for him. It's a move. It's a. It's an unbelievable sign of confidence. But um, yeah, I mean, it just but the but the ability to to hone your trade and 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 develop in such an environment where you're getting first team minutes. He did walk away from that, and you know, you saw it with Matt Turner a little bit too. Even though he's a little bit older, is is like, yeah, you move to Arsenal, you're a backup, but like, where are you getting the reps? I mean, goal goalkeeping is about confidence and reps and 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 seeing it over and over and over again and being in a rhythm. And you do kind of take yourself out of that rhythm a little bit. Yeah, definitely. He, you know, I think he's definitely got the potential. I'm curious to get your perspective in all of your years covering either the development end or the end result uh, with national team players. Do you get the sense that Gaga Sunina has the potential and the talent to be the keeper in, in 2026? Like, I think a lot of people would like him to be or develop to be. Yeah, I mean, he's got a lot of potential for sure. Um but goalkeepers are, particularly the teenage goalkeepers, are still among the, the toughest players to judge, um, you know, their career trajectory and where they're going. Um, you know, there's a lot of goalkeepers who, you know, were playing at very low levels in their teens and early 20s. And, and, and you never didn't really start to hear of them until their mid-20s. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of luck that goes into goalkeeping development, too, because sometimes, you know, it, it's just... You know, only one goalkeeper plays at a time. You know, generally backup goalkeepers can can sit on a bench, you know, for years on end. So to find that right place where you start is so tough. I mean, I think he's got potential, but he's, it's going to take some luck um, that he's going to need to find a loan and it's going to have to work out. He's going to have to find coaches who believe in him. Um, it's not like a midfield where, you know, if you don't have a good game, you know, maybe you sit the next game on the bench, but you're always probably going to be subbed in at some point. Like, that's just not the case with a goalkeeper. And, like I said, like, you know, you can look at, you know, the history of U.S. goalkeepers. It's like, you know, Brad Friedel had unbelievable success in the Premier League, and he was in college at this age. And, you know, UCLA and 
Howard was playing, you know, here in semi pros for the for the in New, I think it was the New Jersey Express for at this age too, you know. So and, and, and these these guys can kind of come up out of, out of nowhere. Matt Turner didn't even start playing until he was like fourteen years old. Go the goalkeeper position. He was a baseball player. So you know, and they're, yeah. and, they're and these guys are all people who've had great success. You know, it's 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 a tough position to read. So I can't really project twenty twenty six. It's about the short-term future for him and putting himself in good situations, um, you know, because he could be the 20th goalkeeper in 2026, but there's a good, very good chance he's not. Yeah. You mentioned a few exciting young players, including Jack McGlynn, Jonathan Gomez, who had that stoppage time stunner against Ecuador. I believe it, even Brandon Craig, who are in the pool of dual nationals who are being recruited by other federations, either Mexico or Ireland, do you? What is your sense of how much this tournament could impact the decisions that those players individually will make long term? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to the logjam that that they get into after they go from this tournament. I mean, there, there's, you know, some of these guys, particularly the young guys, like take Obed Vargas for example. I think he's a very good mm-hmm. dual national, but he's an 05, meaning he's after this tournament. He can push to make this Olympics, and not only the, the, the Olympics in Paris next year. And not only is he eligible for the Paris Olympics, he's eligible for the Los Angeles Olympics, age eligible for the U twenty three team in in twenty twenty eight. So there's a lot of opportunities you can keep feeding him, you know. And uh, and obviously, if they have a better experience, they don't want to leave. And and some of them might just try to try to you know fight it out for a while before they they leave. But yeah, I think for example, take Aiden Morris on the Columbus Crew. I think he's really considering Canada at the moment, and and you know, and I think uh, Canada really wants him, and and, and it's tough because will the U.S. be able to give him the games that he wants and the reps that he wants to make him feel wanted? How long is he going to be in the fight for it? You know, like I think it's the same reason why the U.S. was able to benefit from Florin Balogun, you know, because England was just running out of games to give him that were, that felt meaningful to him. I think these tournaments obviously help. They can't really leave unless they file a one-time switch if you play in a tournament like this. And the fact that the U.S. has a couple of Olympics here coming up that, that they can kind of keep guys involved. But, yeah, I mean, um, it certainly buys them some time. It doesn't buy them a permanent decision um, for some of these guys. But I don't think McGlynn, if he goes out there and has a nice long run at this U-20 World Cup, is going to be on the phone to Ireland right afterwards, too. He's going to want to stick around. You, you, make, you, you build bonding and you bond with your teammates and you bond with your crest when you play in these kind of tournaments. They're good experiences to have. Now, if the U.S. doesn't play McGlynn in any kind of tournament for like a couple of years, then that's a different story. I was having a conversation um, with another piece I'm I'm working on at the minute just about how MLS is developing talent Mm -hmm. and how that shifted or attempted to shift over time with a bit more of an emphasis on the more technically skilled players as opposed to the physicality that I think the U.S. has historically been known for and maybe even prioritizing for reasons intentional or, or otherwise. Do you see any shift in the way that the team is playing and or the skill sets that these individuals have? It's funny you should ask. I, I see, you know, um, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, more of the, there is a shift, but it's not what you mentioned. It, it, the shift is more the global game starting to value the, the traits that Americans used to value all these years. Like we were, there was a time when, you were right. Yeah, the U.S. was that you had a bunch of just raw athletes who weren't great soccer players, and then they kind of shifted into like you know in the early you you know those missing years, the, the development years that weren't really panning out. They were trying to go hyper technical, but they were 
they were losing out on the athleticism. That's why, if you remember, like you know, Daniel Huevas was 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 doing very well at the, at the in the twenty thirteen U twenty team. He scored against France and stuff like that. But the athleticism just wasn't there in a big wave of these players. But now there's such a demand on athleticism, you know, throughout the world that like it's shifting more now in the, into what the U.S. is comfortable with. Now, the U.S. had to obviously produce better soccer players and they're doing that. But like in terms of that athlete, technical, you know, edge, it's, the shift is more globally towards uh, the game is far more athletic now than it used to be um you know in the 90s and even the early 2000s i mean you remember when valderrama was playing you know like you know he, he had no one was on the ball he wasn't very athletic but he could just hit great passes and and have a great field vision now it's like everything's so fast and guy defenders are so quickly on these midfielders you, know, you have to have the quick decision of thought but you also have to be fast to, to get away from them and and and, and um and move into space quickly um so that's kind of how i see it is and it's been very beneficial because the u.s has always has good athletes now it's using those good athletes and and, and trying to make soccer players out of them but in terms of like just like unathletic technical highly technical players you know that's those players are not in demand anywhere yeah, definitely has to, has to be has to be both. Do you think that the U.S. is developing that technical end of it though? I think so. I think it's certainly gotten a lot better than it used to be. I mean, it's taken a while, but it's, MLS academies really didn't start until '09, and then a couple, then they started the homegrown rules so that you could sign these players. And but like, how long does an academy take to get up and start really teaching players? It, it takes a whole cycle. Because you, know, you can't just start an academy and then do wonders with like 16, 17 year olds. That's too old. So I think, you know, when you look at the jump as to really things started to change, I think in MLS, when you start, you started seeing the, the fruits of the, of, of the investment, I would say in 2017, 2018, that's when the Tyler Adams and the Alfonso Davies started coming in. You know, you had some young players mm-hmm. coming up before, but they were few and far between like Miazga and Yedlin. But now it's just a wave of, of, um, you know, when you sell, the, when these players get sold, that like you know, it's like kind of like weeds in a good way. It's like three more come and pop up in their place, and 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 that's good. I think it's um, and, and even the ones that don't make the move, they stay here and and raise the level of the league here, and that's all good too. And you have players, most importantly, a first team coaches who are really willing to play younger players and trust them. Um, younger minutes, you know, just you know, not just American players and Canadian players, but also the young South American imports and. You know the, the U twenty two initiative has really helped too, and, and there's it's a it's a far more younger league than it than it used to be, and it's healthier, and and they sell players, and yeah, obviously you know the proof is in the fact that all these players get sold. I mean, there's there is a demand, and there's a lot of uh, the proof is that there's so many people scouting the league and looking to buy some of these players. How much do you think can be made? You know, I, I've heard some some players saying that they intend to make a deep run. Whether they can do that, I think. Depends. Certainly the potential is there, but how much can we make or interpret from the performance in this U-20 World Cup about American soccer in a broader picture? I don't think you want to make it. A, it's a snapshot. I mean, there's, a, you know, they go into the round of 16, it's one game, you know, and, and some you could get a bad penalty mm-hmm. or you can get an own goal, something luck could go against you or it could go for you. You know, you can go out there and beat Brazil. It doesn't mean you're better than Brazil. You can go out there and lose to Guatemala. It doesn't mean you're worse than Guatemala. You know, it's it, it's it, upsets happen for a reason. I mean, if you look at the 2015 U17 team, they, they were terrible at the U17 World Cup. But that team had Pulisic, Haji Wright, Tyler Adams, Luca De La Torre, Bradley Vasquez. Like, it was one of the most productive U17 teams. The the, the 
one of the most productive youth teams the U.S. soccer has ever had, and they didn't do well. But yeah, you want to see them making a deep run for their own end and, and also to show how they can fit play together as a team. Uh, yeah, I think it's a good team. I think the U.S. is um, doing a good job considering that they're trying to really readjust. to the. There, there's so many things they're trying to learn on the fly. They're trying to win without Paxton Aronson who's been their best player all cycle. And then all of a sudden he's not with the team anymore. He's been with him, with them just about every single step of the way, the cycle. And now he's not. And now they're trying to learn how to win without their best player. And they're, they never really had a good number nine this team this whole throughout the cycle. And they're just kind of hoping Yappy, Darren Yappy works out. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so there's a lot of things that they're just trying to adjust to on the fly. And, you know, the, the game against Fiji, they were struggling with their finishing, but they didn't play down to the Fiji's level. They, You know, any other day, they could probably bag one of those first half goals and then the dam starts to open and they do well. So I, I think um, you don't want to read too much into the, into soccer, I think, into one particular tournament. What I think is healthy is is like is that when you start looking at the fact that the last three U-20 teams um, went to the quarterfinals and the cycle was canceled because of COVID, and if this team can go back to the quarters again, there's enough, there's a longer window, there's a more... There's a lot more evidence now to suggest that that, that obviously development's going in their in the way here, going their way in the United States, and that you know any, anyone can have a good tournament, but having four good ones in a row, you kind of start to have to say, okay, like you know, they're they have a good system of of uh, putting out good young players right now. Yeah, I think the trend is is encouraging and more important than any individual tournament performance. Thinking about the two games they've played so far, then quickly, Ecuador, again, the U.S. won 1-0 with a stoppage time goal from Jonathan Gomez. What are your big takeaways from that performance? Yeah, you know, I think they, they, they should have done better putting the game away. Um, I thought that the num- that having um, uh, the number, you know, uh, Yappy did well in that game, too, just to add a physical edge, too, because that game got really dirty and chippy towards the end. But the U.S. was really able to prevail. I think, um, you know, Diego Luna is a real X factor for this team. You know, I think he, you know, he really flusters opponents and, and, and prevents them from settling down and, and playing the game how they want it to be played. You know, he's a menace and, and that, that's a that's a good way. I think, um, you know, Gomez was was very, very good. And I thought, um uh, you know, Mikey Varis was was a lot of things that he experimented with worked, you know, obviously going to three in the back and trying to get more width out of the fullbacks. Um, that ended up paying off long time in the run. And then obviously moving Gomez, Jonathan Gomez to the right side, that was designed to allow him to cut in and, and, and to the middle of the field and probably either score or shoot or pass. But wow, I mean, that decision that no one saw coming, not even myself, turned out to be the the, the, the coach's decision that really helped to win the game. So, you know, Varus is, has a good hand for this team, and, and, he's, and he's making a lot of good judgment calls. Yeah, he seems to have a very good relationship and understanding for all of his players as well. How about moving into the Ecuador game? What what did he change and shift? To, in, oh, sorry, the Fiji game. What did he change and shift moving into that second match? I think, you know, he went back to the normal 4-3-3. Um, you know, and obviously squad rotation is a big part of it too. You know, you can't just start all these players every single game. Uh, it was disjointed, like I mentioned. You know, it took him a long time to score. I think uh, he has to worry about where these goals are going to be coming from. But you know, I don't think the performance was as bad as some of the fans were, were saying and, and, and were critical of what I was hearing on social media and on the radio and stuff. They they just didn't score, but that's one area that the team was struggled at. Every other area, they were pretty good. It wasn't a system, systematic failure. You know, I've seen U.S. teams go out there and just play down to the level of opponents. The U.S. was always on the front foot and dominating the game. It was just a question of where that was going to come from, and it came from Diego Luna at the end. 
you know, I, I think it's one of those things where you just got to worry about finishing and work on finishing, but you don't want to suggest, you know, uh, that the team's heading in the wrong direction. It wasn't a dramatic, it wasn't a thing where you have to scrap everything and, and try to find another plan B. You can kind of stick with what you're doing. And now, you know, it's about squad rotation and managing yellow cards, managing health, um, and then knowing that there's going to be two players that aren't on the team joining for the knockouts. So I have to ask you, you brought up the flustered responses that existed in, in places in particular, I think, as it related to finishing in that game. Where do you stand on on finishing discourse? That can be a contentious yeah, I mean, topic in USMT yeah, I mean, Twitter. It, it, it's tough because, um, you know, they scored a lot throughout the cycle, not just at the CONCACAF tournaments. They scored against Argentina. They scored... But like again, you know, Paxton was a big, big part of that, and you know, and, and Gutierrez has looked very good when in his limited time with the team. And so you're missing two big pieces of the equation, and then you know they also played in qualifying without a number nine. They they did a false nine formation, and sometimes that was Aronson, sometimes it was Cowell. Now they have the, now they're trying to get done with a true number nine, and and Yappy that true that true number nine has rarely played with this team. He was only part of the March camp. So it's a lot of things that are new to this team that they're still just trying to figure out. But yeah, it's, it's got to be better. It should be better. But I, I think it will be better. I still think it's it's almost preseason for this group of players as they try to as they try to you know adjust to life with a nine and life without Paxton. So they've got one more game in the group stage against Slovakia. Have you been catching Slovakia's games? And and what do you? How do they size up? I watched um, their game against Ecuador yesterday. I thought that game was kind of back and forth. I think Ecuador winning in the balance was fair, but there was there were certainly long stretches when Slovakia was the better team. They're good. They're disciplined. Um, they're you know they they're tough to break down. But you know you know at, in terms of this tournament too, it's you know they're going to be playing with the, for their lives because if they lose, then then they're walk away with three points and only a win over Fiji, and that might not be good enough to advance. So they're going to be desperate, and um, the U.S. hasn't really faced a desperate team yet. And, you know, these guys with their backs against the wall, I think it could be a tougher game than more, more people realize just because of um, the desperation factor. Um, you know, they the, their, their squad is like most of the – U20 World Cup, largely, primarily domestic-based players. Um, and they're obviously playing for a move to get out of Slovakia, too. It's a league that doesn't pay much, you know, and this is obviously a chance to play in front of scouts. They're going to be very motivated, and, you know, and at these youth tournaments, it's, uh, you know, it's you got to take care of things early because you got to crush hope and you gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta. You know, if another team's enthusiastic, you gotta, you gotta kind of put them into a, a little bit of despair to start. I think that's why the U.S. you know scoring early against Fiji would have would have really. I mean, the U.S. could have won that game six seven nothing if they scored early. Uh, that would have really deflated them. So that's what they have to do. They have to be really good from the start against Slovakia. Yeah, it seems that they took a while to get going. Obviously, in both games, a stoppage time goal decided it against Ecuador and, and against Fiji as well. But once they once they picked the mm. lock, it, the floodgates seemed to open at least a little bit. So hopefully, they just do that a bit earlier against Sl- Slovakia. How important is it for the U.S. to place first? I mean, obviously, they've already progressed to the knockout stage, but how important is it that they come first in this group for their I mean, tournament I think, chances? Um... It's you know if they win then they play a third place team but you know that could that could that could be Italy um, with the way things are going too and you know Italy I know they came off with a tough loss today to, to Nigeria it could be a, a number of different teams you know you just got to go out there and not really worry about who you're who who you're gonna face and 
you know, obviously you could face a very good team. It's it's about momentum more than anything. Because if you come in with with momentum at your back and a nine point group effort, I don't think I've ever seen a U.S. Uh, youth team come out of a World Cup with nine. I've seen them come out with seven, but nine is is a different level. And then all of a sudden, and then they're bolstered by Kevin Paredes joining the team in the knockouts and and Rokas Puktas. And so the reinforcements will be arriving at that point too. I think it's a you know it, it's just good because you don't want to lose momentum coming. Yeah, you know, I think if this U.S. team has a lot of momentum, U twenty World Cup, anything can happen. I don't, I don't think anyone in this tournament is is someone the U.S. team should fear. They could lose to anybody, but there's no there's no reason to think that the U.S. is going to have to bunker and 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 hit something hit like a phenomenal upset to beat any of these teams in this tournament it's it's a very wide open u20 world cup compared even with 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 things in the past i mean how nigeria just beat italy like that and then italy beat brazil like in italy nigeria struggled against i think the dominican republic it was how, how do you make sense out of that i can't so i just think it's just keeping up the momentum and then and then i think that could solve a lot of problems in and of itself regardless of who the opponent is do you you kind of just said that maybe there's no making sense of it, but do you chalk that up to any kind of progression in the uh, global landscape of, of development across the world, or is that just kind of the chaos of a, yeah, of a tournament youth, at this level? Youth soccer is always a lot tougher to predict. I mean, I didn't have Ukraine winning it in 2019, and they did. You know, it's well, you're right. I, I mean, kind of goes back to what I said earlier. You know, it's trend lines across tournaments which are more valuable. One particular data point on that trend line isn't that important. But yeah, I mean, because look, you're talking about essentially two birth years make up 95% of your team. And there's always going to be weaknesses. Maybe you don't have a good right back in that tournament, or you don't have a good goalkeeper at that age group. And maybe in the following age groups do, you know, you don't really know in terms of making sense of things. Um, but, you know, I th- it doesn't mean it's not important to these guys, or it's important to their careers. But yeah, in terms of you know, I think you have to chalk up a lot of this stuff to um, just the sheer nature of youth tournaments. And then also this year, too, in particular, France had 28 players denied releases for, for this U20 World Cup. You know, how do you make sense of how they're going to be after they don't get 28, 28 player requests um, for their for their roster? That's unbelievable. And FIFA, you know, that, that's, that's a lot of it's to blame on FIFA, but all that kind of stuff. And every team is going through that right now. So it, it just kind of makes... A tournament like that, like this, even more predictable than a U twenty World Cup normally would be, which is unpredictable. So it's a, it's a real crapshoot. Yeah, I guess that could potentially speak to the higher level that younger exactly. athletes exactly. are playing in countries like France. Okay, last question for you, Brian. I appreciate the time talking about this U twenty World Cup so far, but just what are going to be the names that you're keeping an eye on as we play Slovakia? and head into the group stage that you think are going to be playing a bigger role or continue to grow on what they've already yeah, been obviously, doing? Yeah, obviously, you know, Paredes when he joins and, and, and Puktas is coming off of a, a, a nice run in, at, at Hajduk Split. Although that midfield, there might be some chemistry issues in the midfield you don't want to disrupt. Paredes will start and he's supposed to be one of the, he's supposed to probably be the best U.S. player. McGlynn, Vargas, Edelman, those are three midfielders that that you want to see. Edelman's the captain. I, I want to. I'm looking forward to seeing him against uh, tougher opponents and shielding that back line. Craig uh, has been very good, like I talked about, and, and Widener if he gets back on the field, which I think he should. I mean, how can a, a 2005, which is eligible for next cycle, handle that um, that responsibility? And then obviously I've talked about him before, but Caleb Wiley, I think is probably among the more scout. I think he's. If I was to guess, I would say he's the 
the the top of the checklist in terms of scouts looking at the U.S. team. And uh, I, I want to see if he continues to live, you know, and I think the Slovakia game is going to be big because I don't I think Gomez is going 180 minutes in the first two games. So it, there's a wide open need there at left back, I think, while he's going to start. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing how, how he does there. Very exciting stuff. Brian, where can people follow you and keep up with your work if they're not already doing <laughs> yeah, so? Uh, follow, Twitter, I try to gear all my articles at Brian Charetta, B-R-I-N-S-C-I-A-R-E-T-T-A. But if not, just check American Soccer and Soccer America. And um, uh, that'll be most of what I'm writing. And occasionally I pop up on um, at some newspapers. And, uh, and every Tuesday morning, you can listen to me on Sirius XM in the morning. Lovely. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Take care. Thanks, Mike.